Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The crash itself was the most investigated car crash in French history. And the French did a report and produced it to the investigating judge, Stéphane Effet, two years later. And I'll tell you what, no one in the court could believe it. The reporters couldn't believe it. The barristers, nobody could believe it. He was very clear. He wanted nothing to do with me. He didn't want anything or any part of Robin Firestone's testimony. What is forgotten is the jury in this case came back with a very important verdict. And they didn't think it was an accident either. And that's what's been misreported, mainly because the police want to regard it and always have regarded it as an accident. Welcome to episode 11 of Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. I'm your host, homicide detective Colin McLaren. Last time we heard of the many conspiracy theories that sprung up after the car crash that killed Princess Diana and her companion, Dodie Fayed, and their driver, Henri Paul, led mostly by Dodie's grieving father, Mohammed Al-Fayed. As you know, it's difficult. Uh, the father who lost his son was Princess Diana. It's not easy to know that your child been slaughtered, right? By a bunch of gangsters whom they call themselves the British royal family. And the head of the British royal family himself, Prince Philip, he's a Nazi at the core and he's a well-known racist. Now we're going to examine the official inquests into the death of the princess to see if they are able to cut through the confusion and conspiracies to arrive at something that resembles the truth. Immediately following the crash, the French had conducted a judicial investigation. After two years and 300 witness interviews, the presiding judge announced his conclusion. The crash which shocked the world. Diana and Dodie died in Paris on August the 31st, 1997. Initial suspicion fell on the photographers involved in a high-speed chase of Diana. Now, two years later, a judge has ruled that the crash was caused by the drunken driving of Henri Paul, the couple's chauffeur. A simple drink-drive accident. That's it. You must be kidding. The French police who investigated agreed it was caused by a drunk driver going too fast and there were nothing else in the crash of any interest or significance other than that. Paul had been drinking in the Ritz bar and prior to that he'd been drinking elsewhere so he was quite well tanked up as tests later showed. He was a drunk driver and he drove into Pillar 13. And to make matters worse, his 6,000-page report has never been made public and there appeared to be huge gaps in the judge's summing up. 
most notably concerning the mysterious white Fiat Uno. Our investigations have shown beyond doubt that a white Fiat Uno was the second vehicle at the crash site, and credible witnesses named the driver as Lee Van Tan. Police stopped searching for Fiat's at that juncture, which all points to Lee Van Tan. Dodi's father, the Harrods boss, Mohammed Al-Fayed, said he sticks to his conspiracy theory. He believes firmly still that there was a conspiracy and that in some way the presence of the paparazzi in the chase were used as a cover for what happened. Two years on, as people continue to visit the underpass where Diana and Dodi died, the views of Dodi's father are shared by others. The debate over the cause of the crash will continue for many years to come. In 2004, the British Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir John Stevens opened Operation Pageant to investigate the deaths of Diana and Dodie. His first report was published in 2006. The conclusion? Remarkably, much the same as the French judges. But also like the French inquiry, there appeared to be huge gaps. And across the Atlantic, witnesses to the crash, such as Jack and Robin Firestone, read about the French and British inquiries with open mouths, mostly because it was the first they'd heard about any of it. I got to the line that it said that they've come to a conclusion, their conclusion that after speaking and meeting with and getting testimony from every witness that came forward, this is what they determined to be the outcome of what caused the crash. And I just was shaking. I just couldn't believe it. They claimed they interviewed all the witnesses. Robin and I were not interviewed. And something was rotten about that. I don't understand. How on earth could they put this out there that every single witness who came forth and gave testimony was brought to give formal testimony at Scotland Yard and at the French inquest? they didn't talk to us, then there must be a couple of truckloads of other witnesses that they didn't talk to either. Something didn't smell right. Under pressure from Mohammed Al-Fayed, the following year a full inquest into the crash began at the British High Court of London under the supervision of Lord Justice Scott Baker, and this time with a jury to consider the evidence presented to them. Another investigation into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, is underway in London. It's the third official fact-finding probe into Diana's death in 1997. Will it make a difference? This man hopes so. Mohammed El-Fayed was the father of Dodi Fayed, who died with Diana in a car accident in a Paris tunnel 10 years ago. And I hope to reach the decision, which I believe that my son and Prince Diana have been murdered by the royal family. The jury was sworn in and immediately began hearing from those close to Diana. Everybody held their breath for a genuine result. And during the six months of that inquest process, I think 177 witnesses were heard, but there were many, many more who were not heard at all. The two people responsible for Henri's autopsies and the toxicology tests, most of them refused to appear at the inquest in London. Other notable names were absent from the High Court. Do you call any members of the royal family as witnesses? They are not above the law. They are not above the law. Why? Why they don't appear as if they are, feel themselves they are clean, they have nothing to hide. Why they don't appear? Only if they are frightened and they know exactly they have ordered the murder. If they have any dignity or any honor, they will appear. 
the Duke of Edinburgh and Prince Charles both refused to be witnesses in the case of the death of his ex-wife and, in the Duke's case, ex-daughter-in-law. There was no reason why the Duke of Edinburgh or Prince Charles shouldn't or couldn't have given evidence, and they should have done so. Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh sent along his private secretary to give answers to questions, and that, of course, was clearly unsatisfactory. Another important person of interest to the inquiry was also not summoned to appear. At one stage, a man of Vietnamese ancestry was identified as a possible suspect of driving the car with a dog in the back. There were suspicions that this gentleman, who I think was working in a security capacity somewhere in Paris, was involved. And it was said at the time that his car had been repaired and indeed repainted, but he has never been called, certainly was not called to the British inquests. Why was Lee Van Tan not called to testify? Just as worrying, why didn't they pursue him in France? In fact, as in the preceding French report, the white feet was barely mentioned at all, and there were other odd omissions. The jury were not allowed to hear or see certain elements of evidence. They were not allowed to see the post-mortem reports of Diana or Dodie. For some unknown reason, they should have been allowed to do that. Further gaps appeared. The jury was shown the letter Diana wrote to Paul Burrell, in which she claimed to be afraid Charles was going to kill her. The same letter Burrell told us about earlier in this series. I fear that Charles is going to organise an accident in my car. I'm going to die of head injuries and be killed in order that he can marry Camilla. Now it emerged that there had been a second letter expressing the same fears and that the police had not only known about it, but suppressed it. Princess Diana herself believed strongly that she was going to be murdered and she predicted how she would be murdered. She said that she would be murdered in a car crash orchestrated to look like an accident and she very firmly blamed her husband for being behind that plot and she went to see her solicitor, a man called Victor Mishkon, Lord Mishkon, the most eminent solicitor in London and she laid out to him her fears and Lord Mishkon made a very detailed note of what his client, Princess Diana, had told him in front of also another witness from his law firm and also the princess's secretary, Patrick Jefferson, a former naval officer. And he told the commissioner what the princess had said and he gave him a copy of his note at the time. By English common law, when there is an unexplained or violent death or sudden death, if you have any information that's relevant to that, you have a legal duty to provide that to the coroner. Paul Condon, Sir Paul Condon, did not do that. He put it in his safe. And when he handed over control of the Metropolitan Police to John Stevens, his successor, he told Stevens about that note, the Mishcon note, but Stevens also kept it in the safe and did nothing about it. 
Two senior police officers suppressed the Mishcon note, which was a vital piece of evidence in the case. Representing Mohammed Al Fayed at the inquest was barrister Michael Mansfield QC. Lo and behold, not long after, during the pageant report, it was revealed for the first time the police had been holding on to a note. They had very paper thin excuses for not revealing that note before. You begin to see why this has a very serious and substantial cloud of suspicion around. Why did the British police not? give it to the French police when they did their inquiries because they kept it in a safe and in fact nobody knew about that note until after Back in America, Jack and Robin Firestone dumbfounded that they had not been called to give evidence at the inquiry or Operation Pageant they were determined that a testimony would be heard at the High Court but once again they had not been summoned to the witness stand Robin and I agreed that something, in fact, had to be done. And Robin took the bull by the horns. So I just decided that I was going to cold call Harrods and ask to speak with Mr. Mohammed Al-Fayed. As crazy as that sounds, that's exactly what I did. And somebody got back to us very, very quickly. I told them that we were witnesses that were never called back to give testimony. The Al-Fayed legal team flew out to meet Jack and Robin in New York, where they presented the couple with another surprise. They presented Robin and I with a copy of the deposition that we had given over 10 years earlier. That deposition was redacted 80%. So why would the French police, from the statement I gave in 1997, need to redact it? I don't know the answer to that, but if you think about it, and I invite everybody who's listening to think about it, I guess you just have to read between the lines and you'll figure it out. And they said, we need to retake each individual, yours and Jack, separately. We must present it to the courts of England. And if there is any information that they deem could be relevant or possibly change the outcome, they will be calling us to appear as witnesses at the High Courts of London in England and give formal testimony. In fact, a date was set for Robin and I to give testimony in London in early December at the second and final inquest into Diana and Dodie's death. After 10 years of frustration, suppression and confusion, Robin and Jack Firestone were finally going to be able to tell the world what they had seen at the Place de Alma the night Diana died. On December the 3rd, 2007, they appeared at the High Court. They called me to the stand first. The barristers were very rude to me, very curt, very challenging. The whole thing was just so surreal. Lord Baker would ask me questions. I said, well, just like 10 years ago, I said, I don't have the answer to that. I said, but Robin does. And when Robin comes up on the stand, you'll be able to ask Robin that question. And this happened a couple of times at least, maybe even three times, in regard to what we saw. I was on the stand being grilled for about 45 minutes, and now next, presumably, it was supposed to be Robin's turn to go up and give testimony. Lord Justice Scott Baker himself said, I think we have enough. We heard from Mrs. Firestone. We're going to take a break from lunch. We're running late. I think that we could forego and not have to uh, bother or, you know, put Mrs. Firestone uh, on the stand. It was like he was doing me a favor. And not only 
couldn't I believe the words that were coming out of his mouth after all this time? Are you kidding me? Like, is this even real? Is this still happening? What is going on? Once again, just as in Paris 10 years before, Robin Firestone was being shut down. Only this time, rather than being in a French police station, she was in a British high court. And immediately, there were protests from the other barristers. The immediate objections that there were, I mean, these guys stood up, I mean, there was like hammering in the courtroom. One of the barristers saying, Your Honor, Your Lordship, Scott Baker, you know why you brought Mrs. Firestone here. Her husband didn't see these things. And that's the exact reason why it was deemed that they come and give testimony. And do we need to point out what it is that we are referring to? And I knew that they were talking at least about the dark cars. Ultimately, he really didn't have a choice. He was backed up against the wall, and he goes, all right, I think we could knock this out quickly. So I go up, and boy, did he just want to chew me up and spit me out is how I felt. So much so that it was so quick, and I couldn't really say what I wanted to say, elaborate on all of what he wasn't really asking me to describe that he said, okay, I think we have enough, we've heard enough, we have enough, Mrs. Firestone, you can step down. This time Robin refused to go lightly. I wasn't going anywhere. This is where the Taurus and Robin Firestone came out and said, well, excuse me, Your Honor, Lord Justice Scott Baker, I am not finished, I have something else to say. Is it okay if I still say something else? I'm not finished. So he just said, well, if you must... And I started to say a few things about you're all this time and I'm finally here and I just find it really hard to believe that you're not letting me tell you in detail the facts of what I saw and what we experienced as a result of it. And in any event, he let me say whatever I ranted to him at that point to say that. And he said, okay, are you done? Is that it? I said, I guess that's it. I absolutely felt like Lord Justice Scott Baker not only did not want me on the stand, but that he was backed into a corner to put me on the stand because of my testimony, but could not wait for me to get off of that stand. I always believed and will always believe that there had to be a reason that they did not want me to be on that stand. And I believe it to this day. And I do believe it had something to do with what I saw and what I was able to validate. Missing witnesses, important evidence barely considered, an almost complete lack of attention to the white Fiat Uno or its driver, and the apparent dismissal of the eyewitness testimony of two people who were right there at the crash site just moments after it happened. There was no doubt in my mind, and I sat through almost every day of the inquest, and I was indeed in the witness box for two days. There was no doubt in my mind that the coroner, Scott Baker, was very much pushing towards a verdict of accidental death caused by speed and alcohol. And that was the message of his summing up to the jury of 11 men and women. Maybe they were looking to discredit Jack and then maybe they were looking to discredit me. I, none of it makes sense to this day I, when I look back at it. So I think we were just verily dismissed so that we wouldn't open up any potential Pandora's boxes. 
maybe they didn't want to hear any testimony which might shed additional light on the possibility that Diana's and Dodie's deaths were premeditated. I don't know. I can't answer for them. But we're talking about three people are killed. Whatever, however that happened, there were three people who died. Three family people who had lives. Yes, of course, Princess Diana was one of the most well-known and loved figures and women, powerful women in the world. Mother to future king. But she was a mother to those kids. Her life was snuffed out. From that day forward, there was no more of her. And yet we can't stop talking about her, finding evidence about what really happened. It's a view Michael Mansfield QC would appear to share. The Paget Report, which was somewhat of a, a whitewash, and done in order to, my view again, provide a very one-sided view of matters prior to the inquest. This whole investigation took place prior to the inquest. In terms of the element of how this was brought about, I personally think from the eyewitness evidence within the tunnel, was necessary to cause Henri Paul to create a situation in the tunnel in which he sandwiched between a car in front of him, the driver of which has never been traced, and he's being followed by a large number of motorcycles. However, the British police discovered that none of the immediate motorcycles were the paparazzi. They were further back. So there's some unidentified tailgating motorcycles. And that's what interests me. Pier 2 now was of considerable interest. And it, it may have glanced off the Pier 2 now because it was being pursued, the car in which Diana and Dodie were. It was being pursued. There's no question about that. But the real issue is who were the motorcyclists closest to the vehicle when it entered the tunnel and was basically forced into a situation in the tunnel in which it glanced off the 13th pillar and, of course, did a complete turn and hit one of the walls. On the 31st of March 2008, the Lord Justice began his summing up, a process that would last three days. What was also unsatisfactory about the inquest was that um, the coroner, Lord Justice Thomas Scott Baker, told the jury of 11 ordinary London men and women, he told them that they were not able to even consider a verdict of murder. That was a verdict not open to them, he said. Well, how can you possibly run a race by deciding before it starts the outcome of that particular race? What you're about to hear is an actor's voice speaking the words of Lord Justice Scott Baker, directing the jury as to what verdict they could return on Diana's death. The conspiracy theory advanced by Mohammed Al-Fayed has been minutely examined and shown to be without any substance. There remain the suggestions of whether this might have been a staged accident, but for reasons that I have already explained, it is not open to you to return a verdict of unlawful killing on the part of anyone other than the driver of the Mercedes or the following vehicles or both together. Consider first whether you are satisfied so that you are sure that there was gross negligence on the part of the driver of the Mercedes or the following vehicles or both and that it caused the death of the deceased. 
If you are not satisfied, you must go on to consider whether you are satisfied on balance of probabilities of accidental death. In considering each of those possible verdicts, you will consider the evidence that this was a staged accident. If that or anything else results in your not being satisfied to the relevant standard of proof of any of the other verdicts, you will return an open verdict. The jury deliberated for five days. On April the 7th, they gave their verdict. They brought in the most serious verdict that they could possibly have returned, which was of unlawful killing. It is a very serious verdict, of course. It uh, stands by what it says. And they could not have done more than they did. The verdict was no accidental death. It was a result of the driving of Ari Paul and the pursuit by following vehicles. Now, that is extremely important. So it was never recorded by the jury after having heard something like two to three months of evidence that this was an accident. And I think I want to emphasize that because so often it is recorded as an accident, it's not. More than 10 years after her death, and at a cost of over £12 million, which is $20 million today, the official inquest into how and why Diana came to die was now over. Unbelievably, the verdict was that she was unlawfully killed due to the actions of Henri Paul and the chasing vehicles. No real mention of the white Fiat Uno or any driver. The whole outcome from such a massive inquiry lacked any detail or transparency. In fact, it seemed to be a whitewash or a cover-up. And the conspiracy theorists, well, they weren't going away either. All sorts of theories ran wild. Then, in 2013, there appeared to be a dramatic new development. British police say they are looking at new information in the death of Princess Diana. They have not given details, but they just announced they are, quote, scoping new information that has recently been received, end quote. At the court-martial of former British Special Forces sniper Danny Nightingale, evidence from an anonymous prosecution witness known only as Soldier N claimed that a member of the British SAS actually killed Diana. Information passed to the police is thought to include an allegation that the British military may have been involved in the deaths of Diana and Doriel Fayed after their car crashed in Paris 16 years ago. The Metropolitan Police is looking into the information but says it is not reinvestigating the deaths. There were no further details, nothing to back up the wild accusations. And like all the other baseless conspiracies, nothing came of that supposed lead. And the fact is, until a definitive account of exactly what made Henri Paul lose control of Diana's Mercedes that night is agreed upon, the rumours, the half-truths, the lies and the fantasies will just keep on coming. I travelled from Australia to Paris in 1997 in the immediate aftermath of Diana's death, determined to find the truth. And despite my investigations, what I've seen since from the official channels all amounts to either a deliberate whitewash or a staggering incompetence from all concerned. And so I've come back to Paris now to find the one man I believe holds the key to finally laying Diana's ghost to rest. And I'm determined to talk to him. Next time, in the final episode of Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved. We are in Paris attempting to find answers to the most elusive question in modern day history. Who 
or how Princess Diana was killed. We are on our way to Levan Trans House. He was uh, the owner of the infamous Fiat Uno. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, is hosted by me, Colin McLaren, executive produced by Dylan Howard, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton, reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero, with additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder, and Benstown. There is so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, wherever you get podcasts. <laughs>